Jill. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7. You know, it's crazy. Last week I got to preaching and just kind of just kind of took off with it. And I was thinking when I got done with it, I was like, man, I didn't even get to, I didn't even get started. I didn't even get to verse 1. But then when I went back and was uh, reading and studying over that, I actually did. I preached the whole first 10 verses. And uh, so I don't think there's any need to go back over any of that. We talked about um, the name of Melchizedek, what it stood for. We talked about uh, Abraham giving tithes and apportioned every, a tenth of everything to Melchizedek and how that showed the superiority uh, of Melchizedek uh, because the inferior always is blessed by the superior. We talked about how Melchizedek was one who was resembling the Son of God. And so uh, that, to me, demonstrated that Melchizedek isn't Christ, but he's a prefigure of Christ. He's a type. He demonstrates to us uh, uh, several different things, being the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We understand that Melchizedek was one that pointed to the coming Christ. We pointed out, too, that Melchizedek, uh, in his superiority to Abraham, uh, he wasn't from Israel. He wasn't an Israelite. Uh, he was from Salem. He wasn't one that, um, that was in the lineage to be appointed uh, by the regulations or the code or the law that he was outside of that as a matter of fact they didn't know anything they didn't have any genealogy so he wasn't appointed and we'll see that more clearly today we also talked about how uh, Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek as a priest forever stands far above and beyond Abraham and all of those who came after him including Levi who uh, gave tithes to Melchizedek as he was in Abraham's loins. We talked a little bit about that awkwardly. And we also talked about um, this blessing of Melchizedek upon Abraham. Now, I didn't get to go back to Genesis 14 and read through that comprehensively like I would have liked to, but the story was broken down for you in a nutshell, and it is that the worldly kings had waged a war against other worldly kings, and then Abraham, who was no king with no city at that time, he just brought together those of his own household who had trained to love God and to be warriors, went out and defeated these worldly kings to set free those who had been taken into bondage and into captivity uh, by this worldly system. And all of this put together demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the one to whom he pays homage and as Abraham set these men free from the kingly powers of this world, from the organized powers of this world, he did so only because he was blessed by Melchizedek, who it says is the priest of the Most High. So apart from God's blessing, there is no defeat or release or conquering of the worldly system. We can only be relieved and, be, and we can only be set free from this worldly system and from death by the blessing of the Most High. And we see that Melchizedek points to Jesus Christ. Well, all of that is right there. I'm not going to go back over all of that more so than I did at least. Let's turn and look at verse 11 and we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 22. Let's all stand to our feet. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 11 through 22. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for, in, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our lord was descended from judah and in connection with the tribe moses said and with connection with that tribe moses said nothing about priests this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of melchizedek who was who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now let's put it in hyperdrive because we only got about 28 minutes. Yeah, that's an intro. So I, wanna, I, I, did, I wanted to do this this morning, and um, I don't ever do this, okay? But I wanted to do this this morning because as I was reading and studying this text of Scripture, and as I was trying to wrap my mind around and asking the Lord to really show me what it is that's being conveyed here and to show me what I'm supposed to take from this and how I'm supposed to understand this and what you're to take from this, uh, it kept coming back to me, popping up into my mind, popping up into my mind, that uh, this, this one word. And uh, I wanted you to be able to grab a hold of this and have it in your mind to be able to write it down and to be able to go back to it and look at it, to go back to it and remember it and for it to stick uh, into your mind. So uh, I think it's called an acrostic, isn't it? When you write a word, in the family thing that we did the other day, so this is an acrostic and uh, it wasn't very hard. You know, you can make acrostics and if I ever try to do that and it's not of the Lord, I can tell because I just spent about eight hours trying to figure out what, what, how can I get that in the letter D, you know? So here's the word, and you can write it down if you like. Hey, you'd be good at hangman, whoever said that. <laughs> Wonder. Wonder. Now, after just reading what I read, you may say, that's pretty cool, but wonder. Like when I read that, it doesn't just make me go, ah, you know, it's just bring about wonder and, and the, the question of, you know, how, wow, this, this awe, this wonder of how. And well, let me kind of break it down for you, and hopefully it'll make more sense to you uh, after I start to break it down, and, and uh, we'll see where it goes. So let's start back at verse 11. And we know what we're coming out of. We're, we're coming out of this idea being established with, with significant force that Jesus Christ is of the order of Melchizedek, which is not in line with the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood law code requirements. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's contrary or contradictory or against it that he breaks the law, but I'm saying that it is wholly different. It is outside of that. That he is appointed in another way. That he is not appointed according to the law, but he is, a, he is appointed in, in another way. And in demonstrating that, that he is superior to Abraham, he is before Abraham, and he is not submissive to Abraham, nor the law that came after 480 years after Abraham that was established by the people that descended from Abraham with specific rules and specific guidelines on who could be a priest, who, was, who were those that were uh, given the right to offer sacrifices, and so on and so forth. Jesus doesn't fit into that mold. He is appointed in a different way. He is from the outside in, which points out in my mind that the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, the, the system of law, had nothing inside of it that could provide salvation. There was nothing inside the law code or the Levitical priesthood that could provide salvation for those who were sinful and lost and cut off from God. Now, let's go to the text, and I'll show you that in the text. So it's demonstrating that Jesus Christ is superior to Abraham, who is the father of Judaism. He's the father of the Jews. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for, in, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So the first thing I want to point out to you there is this, this idea that is implied in the text. The text asks a rhetorical question. The text says, the apostle here writing to the Hebrews, he says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The, the rhetorical question is supposed to flash before your eyes the answer. This answer, and, and a lot of meat here too, could the Levitical priesthood from which the law came, could it offer perfection? No. We understand that through the text here. If it would have been able to produce perfection, bring about perfection, then we wouldn't have needed another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have needed Christ to come because we would have been able to attain it from within that system. So the first letter in our little acrostic here that's drawn oddly at an angle that I just realized is... That the old, now here, let me do this too. What we're going to be looking at and what you should focus on or at least realize is we're talking, we're shifting now from the individual Abraham to Abraham as a representative of the old covenant, okay? And we're shifting to language that describes and distinguishes the old covenant from the new covenant. Now, I don't have time to get all uh, the way back into the distinction between the, the covenants and the different camps and the different opinions. Suffice it to say that some believe that the old covenant is no different than the new covenant. It's just under a new administration. Well, I, I disagree with that. But what we need to see and, and, and think about is the old covenant. Is it covenant? Covenant? And the new covenant. Now, I would put a verses in between here, but that would give a wrong connotation. You do not need to think that because I understand the old covenant to be distinguishable from and different from the new covenant, that I believe they stand in opposition to one another. That is not the case, not in my understanding. So I don't want to put verses, because it's not the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. It is that the Old Covenant, as we have seen demonstrated somewhat here today, sets up uh, and transitions to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant sets up and demonstrates the absolute need for the New Covenant and demonstrates the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ to do what could have never been done before through any system, even the Old Covenant. Now, I don't have time to do this either, but we need to understand, and I want to say at least for you to understand where I am, the Old Covenant, the law, the priesthood, all of the Mosaic law code is not imperfect. It is perfect, okay? It is perfect. The law of God, as given by Moses, is perfect. It is just imperfect at bringing about perfection. We see this here. That is not what the law was intended for. So we would say it this way. The law of Moses is perfectly imperfect for bringing about perfection. Say that ten times fast. But the law itself is perfect it is perfect in every way. That's why it is perfect for demonstrating the imperfections of sinners. So you see the unique purpose of the law was to be so set apart and so perfect that anybody that heard it or got near it or even dared stand in contrast to it would be shown to be the wicked, evil, immoral God-haters that they are. And you see how this sets up the desperate, desperate need for a new covenant. As the language of Hebrews says, a better covenant. So, speaking of this old covenant, the new covenant, speaking of Abraham, speaking of the Levitical priesthood, speaking of the law, this whole system 
was wanting for perfection. It was wanting for perfection. It could not bring about perfection. And when I say perfection, it's, it, I don't mean, but I've explained that well, I think. I don't mean that the law is imperfect. But it is not able to make perfect. So as we think about what it brought about in the lives of men, it was wanting for the ability to make people perfect. To bring and make perfection an actual part of people who... Uh, needed salvation we see that in the text very clearly now if perfection had been attainable through the levitical priesthood in other words it's not for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron what it's pointing out here is is that the levitical law code the the levitical priesthood according to the law would appoint priests according to their lineage and that would be those who had descended from Aaron we see that one would not have needed to come from the outside in if the system itself could have brought perfection to those in need of it from the inside out if one appointed according to the line of Aaron would have been able to bring perfection and salvation then there wouldn't have needed to have come another priest from the order of Melchizedek but it couldn't And so there was this need, and he came. Now it shifts here, and it says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, I'll tell you, I have spilled a lot of ink and typed a lot of uh, letters letters on a page as I have been trying to uh, understand the, the way that the law relates to the new covenant believer. How is the law uh, impinging on, or is the law impinging on the new covenant believer? When I speak of law this way, I'm talking about the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, the laws you find in Leviticus in the Old Testament, the the, uh, laws that demonstrate the specifics on how you are to live. What is the relationship between that law and the new covenant believer who has been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ? And many, many, many people believe that there is no change in the law whatsoever. As it was given to Moses, so too it is given to you. And you must obey that law if you desire to have a good relationship with God. Now, many of those would agree that the ceremonial aspects of the law and many of the judicial uh, types of laws have... Uh, they're not utilized anymore, but now we are just under the moral law. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that, but I would simply say this. The Bible itself never, ever distinguishes, cuts up, separates out the law of Moses. It is always presented as one unit and one unit only. Obviously, the law of Moses does have laws that seem more moral or more Uh, judicial or more ceremonial but they are oftentimes uh, written in ways that have very blurred lines the law is never separated in scripture is one unit our question is how does that relate and we see here from this text right here that there is a change and people don't like change I know it's tough and you can only imagine the Hebrew the Jews here who had come over to Christianity and they're learning all of these new things their eyes are being open to the truth of what the law uh, is and 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 how we are to understand it you know Paul teaches Timothy there he tells him how one should utilize the law he says the law is not made for the righteous Speaking of the Mosaic law, he says, The law is not written for the righteous, but for the sinner, the wicked. It's written to bind those wicked people and to stop them from committing even more atrocity and more wickedness. The law is not for the righteous. 
It is for the wicked. Why is the law not for the righteous? Because the righteous have been made righteous and cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they have no need for an external law written on a wall that they can look at and say, Okay, I am bound and I am led and I am uh, uh, obligated to that. No, why? It's because the law of Christ, the law of love has been written by the by the Spirit of God on their hearts, and they need no outside obligation, for it comes within. The greatest fulfillment of the law of Moses comes in the redemption, transformation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to tell a lover of Christ not to steal his neighbor's car. You can go ahead and write it up there, put a post up. But he's not under the obligation of that sign. He's under the obligation of the Spirit of God that dwells within him. It is inside of him. It is inside. That's why the law of Moses, and we know that from Paul too, right into the Romans. He said, we no longer come in the external way of the law, but by the new way of the Spirit. We are not obligated to the law. We do not, we do not obligate ourselves to the external. No, because we are bound by Christ. On the inside. So there we see this shift and this change and this, this system of laws and priesthood and stipulations and regulations. It was never able to offer that perfection and that, that, that salvation, that oneness, that atonement. It couldn't do it. And so there needed to be another way. There needed to be another way. And it, since it could not be from within, the new, uh, the old covenant camp, there needed to be a way that was wholly different and wholly separated. So, since the old covenant was wanting for perfection, the ability to perfect those that would hear it or uh, um, submit themselves to it, since it was unable to do that, then we needed a solution, a, a person, a truth, or whatever you want to say, from outside The camp. I know. I tell you another thing that uh, is beautiful in this too. And uh, Elder Robert had uh, came to me after service last week and was talking to me. And I was like, "Man, that's good. I'm going to share that. So I'm going to steal this from him." He said, "You know, Brandon, as I read this, uh, he said a beautiful truth sticks out to me, and that is this." is that you don't have to be in to come in, but that those from outside the camp are welcomed in because one outside the camp is the one who came in to destroy death and to defeat the enemy. It doesn't matter who your mom and dad is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many rights and privileges that you've been granted. It doesn't matter what color your skin is it doesn't matter your gender it doesn't matter any of, none of that matters there's only one thing that matters and that is do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ do you believe in him do you love him do you long for him is he your everything and that's why my friends I'm telling you now and I will not get political today, but everybody's trying to figure out a way to make everybody love everybody else and accept everybody else. And I'm telling you, it will never happen. Because it's not just the old covenant Israeli camp that did not have the solution on the inside. It is any camp that manifests itself on this world as a worldly system. It cannot offer unity. It cannot. But the gospel has demonstrated time and time and time and time again that it is the one reality that when it is put in place and when it is proclaimed and when it is planted and it grows up that you will see the most 
the most unity, the most diversity, the, the incredible reach of the gospel is mind-blowing. People from all walks of life, all different uh, shades of skin, all different uh, bank accounts, different everything, and they look at each other and they love each other with a love that this world does not know. It is Jesus Christ who came from outside the camp to blow everything up and to say, listen, look to me, for I provide the better way, the only way, as he says in other places. So we see here that, that it's demonstrated that Jesus Christ is superior to the entire system because it was wanting for perfection. It could not provide it. And, in, and because it was wanting for perfection, there had to be a solution. There had to be one that came from the outside of the camp. And we see that clearly here, too. And I don't know if you've ever thought about these things before. Salvation came from outside of the law. It came from outside of the system in so much as that it was not done in accordance with the precepts and the specifics laid out for mere human beings to meet in order to be able to do what they were called to do. But now, it's wonderful how they play together, too, because Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills every aspect of the old covenant that needed to be perfected and needed to be walked out and needed to be obeyed in order to be the one who would be called true Israel, the only true Israelite who ever perfectly obeyed God and was able to take hold of that Mosaic covenant promise. If you, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you obey me and if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Jesus says, done. And God says, you are my people. And now when we come through Christ and we are born according to the, 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 the blood of Christ and the resurrection, then God looks at us and he says, now you are my people. The gospel is an adoption story, and the blood is the, the adoption payment. Well, as we move on, it says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. A change in the law, what does that mean? Is that when Jesus Christ came, he, he, utterly, uh, he utterly fascinated, transformed, he rewired everything. See, if we're not careful, we'll look here and say, a change in the law, but wait a second. God said it's got to be this way. Jesus said it this way. Wait a minute. Did Jesus become a high priest uh, in, in contradiction to the law? Is that what? No, no, no. He didn't. What he did was is that Jesus Christ, being the law giver, said that this way provides no salvation. I am coming to infiltrate fulfill and show you that the law will go from this inability to bring perfection to now the law of Christ. So we go from the law. Here's the change in the law. We go from the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, the law. We go from this system that is perfectly perfect at pointing out imperfections and sinners and demonstrating that there is no way that you could be one with God. We go from this law for one who I just see him like, like Superman just, you know, you remember that time when Superman came down the sky? He's like, and he like went into the earth. He just penetrates. He goes in from the outside in, just penetrates down to the heart of it. He perfectly fulfills every bit of it, absorbs all of its condemnation in his person. And after it's all absorbed into him, and it kills him, then he stands as one who provides the way to come and have this radical uh, fulfillment of the law be yours as it's imparted to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, that's how we're saved. A lot of people don't know how salvation works. The salvation works is that Jesus Christ died because you should have died. But also, he did exactly what needed to be done to have the relationship with God. Jesus Christ never broke fellowship with God. And when you become a believer, you get that perfect unbroken fellowship as if you never broke fellowship with God too from the Garden of Eden. We beat ourselves up all the time thinking that this sin that we've done today has broken fellowship with God. No, it hasn't. Does it grieve God? I think so. Does it, does it make it harder for you to see God? Yeah, I'm sure of it. 
does it mean that he doesn't love you anymore and that you're separated because you made a mistake if that was the case and you would never been brought in because you made a mistake every minute of every day of your life? And so have I. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you repent? Then stop being caught up in the way that you're doing things as if following a system ever worked. Jesus Christ did not come in according to the law. He came from the outside in and fulfilled every aspect of it. And now he stands as the one lawgiver. The law went from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. So we, we continue on here. So there's this change. There's this shift. And listen to what it says. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. You see, what he's saying here is, is that Jesus Christ is so far above the law that, that it, can't even, it can't even touch him. The law is subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that... that there was a certain way that was prescribed by the law for one to be able to become a high priest, for one to be able to take on that role. And according to Moses, they had to be from a specific tribe. They had to be of a specific lineage. They had to be descended from a certain family. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of patriarchy there. Patriarchy is not a bad thing. But if you were not descended from the tribe of Aaron, you could not be a priest. That's just the way that it was. But we have this figure standing outside the camp. His name is Melchizedek. And the one who was the father of the entire system paid tithes to him. Meaning that not only was he inferior to Melchizedek, but the entire system and everything after it is as well. You see, we can elevate law, can't we? We elevate law all the time. It is the birthplace of legalism. And it is the birthplace of condemnation. Every time you stand over somebody and you judge with unrighteous motives, you are worshiping the law. You see, the crazy thing is, is that legalism and an overarching uh, elevation of the law is the root of both liberalism and legalism. You say, what? Wait a minute. Liberalism, that is do whatever you want to. Think about it this way. It's not about the specific law code. It's about the lawgiver. And when one is extremely legalistic, the reason that we get legalistic and the reason that we want to control everybody is that we don't trust that God can control them with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, now, when the Word of God is clearly laid out and we have black and whites in the Bible, they're there. We can, in love, come to our brother and say, Brother, you are outside the word of God right here, but it's not me looking down on you, condemning you by the way that I live my life, saying, Well, you need to do like me. It's saying, Brother, I love you, and when you get outside of this word, it's going to be bad. Please come back. Please come back. Here it is. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver, and here it is. I have people come to me, they want to argue with me. They don't bring the Bible. I have no time for that. They say, That's just mean. I say, I'm sorry. We can talk, we can discuss, we can kick stuff around, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a verse, if I don't have a verse, then what do I got? I've got opinions and, and musings of men. It could be good, it could be bad, I don't know. But I will never, I, I hope, I pray that God will allow me to never condemn someone or to put a weight on someone, to bind someone according to my opinion, rather than the word of the living God. Who did Jesus talk to about that a good bit? The Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, bind people up and heap up these laws onto people and you're crushing them and you don't even live according to them yourself. And you know the amazing thing? In that, in that same passage, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, oh yeah, he said, you tithe, you tithe even your spice rack. Oh, you are paying attention to the most minute details of the law. Coming into the church and you got your suit and your tie on and you got your... You know, you got your ducks in a row, you know, you're doing all this, but, you know, you're cussing your wife on the way to church. The bottom line is, is that the law brings death because the law is perfect and you are not. Jesus Christ brings life because he swallowed up death and he was your, per your perfect righteousness and he gives that to you because you're in need of it and it's the only way. So this... 
uh, next letter here in wonder, we're looking at this, it, that it's that the old covenant is wanting for perfection or the ability to perfect. And so then we find that since it's not available within the camp, then it has to come from outside the camp. And it can't come according to the law. So it's not according to law. Now, that's a little bit of a tricky one. And I want to touch on that for a minute too because... What I don't mean is that it was lawless the way Jesus did it. See, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that it's, it, it, we've been hitting this time and again. Boom, 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 boom. And this is the point we're being driven home. The law cannot save you. And even the appointment of the one who saved you from the law, it was not according to the law in so much as now it's not like Jesus went and fixed some things and said, all right, now, boy. Get in there and do it, right? We have that mentality. You say, well, I didn't think that. I bet you do. I bet you do. Very often, I bet you do. You see, I heard this guy say one time, and it stuck with me. I heard this years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, it's not as if the Holy Spirit comes, gives you some tools, gives you some power, gives you some strength, and says, all right, now, get in there and do it. No. No. We didn't come to faith so that we would get strength to obey the law so that we would be saved. We did not. It is not as if the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, I'm here with you. Now, as I help you, we'll obey the law enough and we'll be good enough that we're going to get in. I'm sure of it. You see, how many of you in this room, and if I could just impart this to you, I need to impart this to myself, and I pray, God, please set this in my seat, this in my soul. And as I don't, you guys and me, we beat ourselves to death, and oftentimes with good intentions, because we want to be better. But we think, in the, we think according to the law. We still have our minds set on the law. And we think in our minds, I see it all the time, I do it to myself. We think all the time, I gotta do better, I gotta do better, I gotta do better so that God will let me back into peace, rest joy fellowship reading the bible how many times now we've talked about this before how many times do you find yourself loving the word of god it's like fresh manna to your soul and when you read it's like you're drinking from the fountain of living water it comes alive and you're like wow and it, and it stays in your mind and you meditate on it it marinates and you just love it and it just builds this love for your family and your wife's like what is wrong with you and your your husband's like you okay but you're just like yes life is wonderful and you're losing your job and your bank account's low and it's like you, and everybody around you is like you should be sad right <laughs> and you're like but jesus you know you've been there i hope you've been there if, truly been, if you've truly been saved, I know you've been there for at least a few moments. But then, but then, we get to this place, and we have a failure. We broke the law. Broke the law. And then what happens? We, don't, we, can't, we can't read our Bible. We can't even pray. We can't spend time worship, listening to worship music. We can't, we can't lift our hands and praise. Why? Because we're not worthy of it. The Bible's there. You know it's manna to your soul. You know that that Bible right there, if you would only open it and get into the pages, that the nuggets that would come out and the diamonds would have you gazing at its beauty and awe. But you say, I can't. Let me get some things straightened out, and I'll be back, God. We never came that way. We, ne we didn't come that way. We won't come back that way. Paul tells it to the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having come through the Spirit, do you think you're now going to be perfected by the law? So, dear 
Christian, let me say to you today, you made a mistake, you're in a ditch. You think that God has turned your back, his back on you because you've got all this mud and muck splashed up on you? You think that you've got to get cleaned off before you can come back to him? You think, no, 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 no. God has never left you. If you're truly born again, God has never left you. He has never, he has never cut you off from fellowship. You have never not had the right to be called the children of God. You have never not had the right to open up that Bible and walk up to the gates of glory and say, let me in on Jesus' name. He says that you enter into the throne room of grace with confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we don't live like that oftentimes. I wish I did. We don't. It, salvation, perfection, it can't come according to the law. Now, the only way that this, this might could be wrong in another context is, is that the way that the law had to do with it is, is what I told you earlier. It was Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the law that made possible our salvation as he applied and imparted his perfect obedience of the law to our account. But you know what that means? This is what it means. And we're going to get here. I don't even know what time it is. I can't look because we've got to talk about this. At the, end of the, at the end of the text, it says that Jesus Christ is the guarantor of the covenant. He's the guarantor. He's a guarantee, right? Why? I hope this frees somebody in here. You've got to hear this. All eyes on me. All eyes on Christ. So the, the standard, the absolute requirement for relationship with God is perfect obedience to the law. That's it. You, you have to have perfect obedience to the law. Now, we all know, and you should all be saying, oh, no. I can't do that. That's what the law of Moses is for. It, it did that with a megaphone. You can't. You can't. You can't. But when Jesus Christ did, he perfectly obeyed the law. He traded his right to have never-ending fellowship with the Father for separation in some real way. As he died and cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? So that you, who should be forsaken forever, would be joined together with him with the righteousness blood bought and purchased by Jesus Christ applied to your account and never again can be taken away. So as you live your life, you live your life in the reality that God Almighty sees you as perfectly obedient to the law forever. Forever. Never to be undone cannot be undone. And, and, and before I move on, let me say this. The only time when you should be worried if your righteousness is not enough to have fellowship with God is if you've convinced yourself or if you can convince yourself or if you can think and even fathom this. The only time that what got you to God would not stand is if the righteousness and perfect obedience of Jesus Christ would ever not be enough to keep him in the fellowship of God. If his righteousness stands, so does yours. If his righteousness is perfect through impartation of righteousness, through new birth, and the redemption of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, that perfect righteousness is perfectly applied to your account forever. Never again, never again to be undone. So, when you find yourself in a mess, repent, stop, stop it, knock that off, and jump right back in there with God. Jump right back in there with God. So, it's not according to the law. Moving on. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that, the, the, uh, that tribe, Moses said nothing about the law, so it's, it's not according to the law. It's outside. Well, how was it then? Here it is. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Some people say, you're wrong, you're wrong. Jesus had to come according to the law. Jesus had to do it this way. Jesus had, listen, I'm just reading, I'm just a messenger. The Bible clearly tells us that, he was, that Moses said nothing about the tribe of Judah being a priest. Nothing. 
He did not come according to the law. And then it goes on to explicitly say it. He says this. He says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. It was not according to the law of Moses, the, the Levitical priesthood requirements, that Jesus Christ was appointed. He was appointed in another way. They were appointed by their efforts of, of uh, keeping these regulations and by the way that they were birthed into this world. Their priesthood was a worldly priesthood, even though it was sanctified in the Israeli Levitical priesthood system. And so it was set apart from God. It was magnificent. It was beneficial. It did have purpose. It was amazing. It was perfect. But it was perfectly imperfect for doing what only Jesus could do. That system couldn't do it. Th those were mere mortal men seeking and trying to be a priest all the while all they could do and the best they could do was point to the Lord Jesus Christ who would be the priest and it was because he wasn't of any bodily descent of this world not in the patriarchal system because he did not he did not have a human father he did not have he had an adopted human father but he was born of the spirit he was born of the spirit and this is what it says. He was not, he did not become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning the bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, now listen to the distinction. People want to say, oh, same administration, same covenant, same stuff, just different administration. I want you to watch and listen to all the language used by the author to tell you as plainly as he knows how that this is different. It's altogether different. There was a law and that law was perfectly uh, able to demonstrate every sinner's imperfections. It was this. Jesus is that. This can't save. He alone can save. This brings death because of the requirement. It cannot be fulfilled. But Jesus did away with this by fulfilling every one of them and said this no longer is the standard that we come to have a relationship with God. But Christ alone is the standard. He alone is where we get our righteousness. He alone is where we get our peace. He alone is where we get relationship with God. If you do not come through Christ, you cannot come. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. He does not. People ask me if modern-day Orthodox Jews worship God. No, they do not. No, they do not. Do they speak of the same God? I would say, I think so. But they cannot worship Yahweh, who they say they worship. They know of Him. They do not know Him. Because the only way you can worship Yahweh is to worship through Christ. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And it would be like someone coming to me and saying that they love me, yet they have crucified and keep my boy on the cross as if his sacrifice was nothing, saying that he is nothing. You cannot love me and not love my wife. You cannot love me and not love my son. You cannot love me and not love my family. You can't even be my friend and hate my son. You hate my son, you hate me. You hate my son, you hate me. That's where we are. People say, oh, that's intolerant. Yes, yeah, so what? Jesus Christ is the one that said that uh, no one can come to the Father but by me. He is, he is his words. He's intolerant. Tell it to him. Tell it to God. He was the one that set it up this way. God's like, oh, I'm going to send a few sons. Muhammad ain't God's son. Neither is Confucius. Neither is whoever. Joseph Smith. He, and I'm going to move on. 
So the old covenant, the law code, the priesthood, beautiful, wonderful. And we'll talk about sometime, if y'all want to, what the proper use and lawful use of the law is. Because the law is beautiful. I do not want in any way, shape, form, or fashion for it to seem as if I'm saying the law is bad or the law is awful or the law should have never been given. No, we love the law. We read the law now from this side of redemption and we see all that Christ has fulfilled for us. And I'll tell you this. A lot of the times, you start looking at your life. I tell you this, brand new believer, one year, never read the law his entire life. God's been transformed and sanctified, justified him, starting to sanctify him, set him apart. He's reading the law. He's like, oh, I do that. I didn't know that. You're supposed to. Oh, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. And we find that, that the law is fulfilled in you, and you didn't even know it. Because you didn't need the outside obligation. Because that internal change came from Jesus Christ living in you. Let me move on. I know it. So, D, that this new way is different altogether. It's different. It's different. The law couldn't do it. We need a different way. You see, so many people try to tell me, no, no, no. Covenant's the same. Requirements the same. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. If you want a relationship with God, this is the only way to do it. It's not according to the law. Perfection came from a means that was altogether different. It was different altogether. He said, Where do you find it? Well, I'm telling you right here. It says, This becomes, so this whole thing is building up to that. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who uh, has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. We had to have one. Why is that? Why is that? Well, that's why 22 exists. Is because the reason that Jesus Christ is the perfect guarantee of our faith is because he has an indestructible life. Now, does that mean that Jesus Christ didn't really die on the cross? No, that's not what that means. What it means is, is that though he died, he lives and he can never die again. What it means is he swallowed up death and he made it. He swallowed up death and he ate it. I can only picture this, Daniel. I'm telling you, I've, I've pictured this many times. And it's just a, it is a resounding image in my mind. That when I think of Jesus Christ, you know that one song says, and there's a big debate about this, that uh, he descended into the grave, you know, uh, um, there ain't no grave that can hold me down. Well, part of that song says he descended into hell and he took back every key. Um, there's a big debate on whether or not Jesus Christ went into hell upon his death, okay? I'm not going to get into that. You, you, it's, it's a pretty fun topic to, to read. Let's say, if nothing else, he went down to the place of the dead. When we look at that story, when we look at that, I have this picture in my mind. Every single time I have this picture in my mind. Does anybody remember the, the movie Terminator? The original one. The first one. The best one. When uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he came down or through or however it happened, like he, he showed up on earth, on this, I guess on earth in that time. He, tra he time traveled. And when it happened, it was like, boom. And then all of a sudden, the camera pans over to him, and you got this massive beast of a man who can deal damage, right? And he's like this. I love it. I love it. Like I used to do when I was little. I'd be like, I am the Terminator. This is how I picture Jesus landing in the place of the dead every single time. And I cannot help but to picture Satan. Now, don't hold me to the biblical, exegetical, theological precision that you do on other things because I'm just talking right now. I cannot help but to picture Satan being like, yeah, got you. And he sees him coming, and then boom. And then pan the camera pans over, and he's like, hold up. Wait a minute. Because, you know, Satan thought he had him. Thought he had. But who, who swallows up death, chugs it down, and just brushes it off? Jesus Christ. Indestructible life. And indestructible life means that 
death and and not and, and the reason I said don't hold me to theological precision there is because we have this idea that Satan is in charge of hell, and that's just an absurd idea. But that's what pictures in my mind, right? Satan is not in charge of hell. Let me tell you right now. He's going to be over in the corner weeping and peeing on himself too, okay? <laughs> Every judgment house has got it wrong. <laughs> Satan is not the one. Jesus Christ is. But anyway, he swallowed down the wrath of God and made it. Came back to life. That's the indestructible life. So it's different altogether. All right. At the last portion of it, and I'm done. If you guys want to come on up, I'm going to throw these last two up, and I promise I'll be done. I don't know. I'm running long. And it was not without an... Now, watch this. It was not... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Verse 18. For on, the other, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. It's set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He just said that the Levitical priesthood mandates were set aside because of their weakness and uselessness. Wait a minute. Are you talking bad about the law? I think that we have to put it in context, and we have to understand that the weakness, the weakness and uselessness of the law is in this context, speaking of its ability to perfect those who are imperfect. It's unable. It's weak. It's useless for that. It cannot do it. It wasn't given for that. It was given to demonstrate their weakness and their uselessness. And Jesus Christ came to fulfill it but listen what it says for the law made nothing perfect but on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God a better hope is introduced so the one uh, thing the one side is, is that you've got this law and man if you can do it you got hope and everybody's like but none of us can do it <laughs> so what does that mean no hope but then you've got the other side that says I did it you come to me and you'll have what I did. That's hope. That's hope. So in your deepest, darkest moments when you're doubting everything and you're saying, how could God love me? I'm such a sinner. You need to ask the question, does God love Jesus? Sometimes you can't even accept the fact that God loves you. I get it. So stop asking that question. And if you're a true born-again Christian who is one with Jesus Christ and you've been clothed in Christ and he is yours and you are his and no one as he said can pluck you out of my hand who's gonna take who's gonna take you out of Jesus hand remember he's like nobody taking you who's gonna take you out of his hand you gotta ask this question don't ask does how can God love me ask does God love Jesus does God love Jesus Absolutely. You know, that's easy to answer, right? Ask yourself that. Does God love Jesus? And you'll answer yourself, well, of course he does. He's Jesus. Do you know what Christian means? Little Christ. You are little Christ. Heirs of the king. Heirs according to the promise. Children of God. You are the children of Abraham because it's those who have come by faith are the children of Abraham. You are little Christ. You, When God looks at you, he doesn't see your faults, flaws and failures. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So shake that on off. It has no binding on you. Romans 8 tells us that. You are not in debt. You are not in debt to the sinful lusts and passions of this world. No, no. You are indebted to Christ because what he's given you, you'll never repay. So stop trying and just live in the abundance of life that is yours and so we see the e is enduring perfection so we're going from old covenant to new covenant we're going from law let me do this right here we're going from law of moses to law of Christ. We're going from no hope to hope. We're going from death to life. And this is enduring, enduring perfection. Because he has an indestructible life. He's already drank down the entire portion of the wrath of God that could have wiped out every living being on the entire planet a billion, million, trillion eternal times over again. He drank it down and stood back up because death has no victory over one who has no sin. 
The only sin he had was yours. And when he took that down into the grave, he laid that down and he came back up. You see, he would have had to stay dead if he'd had sin because that's the penalty for death. That's the penalty for sin is death. So the only reason he died is because he strapped your sin to his back. Penal substitutionary atonement that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear me, church? That he who knew no sin became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear me? That you, upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become the righteousness of God. Do you ever tap into that you understand what i'm saying you dear saint you are the righteousness of god that is i want you to raise your hand for me if you're a true believer in god i want you to raise your hand for me i want you to say this out loud i am the righteousness of god that's what you are not because you're really good or you give or you attend church that's silly no it's because you believe in the lord jesus christ and he has clothed you in his righteousness and you walk you can walk into the holy of holies and into the throne room of grace with confidence nobody can do that except the son of the living god and you through christ have become sons and daughters of god nobody can just pop up into my house but my kids, anytime, and they do it. They leave the door open. They bust up in here. Hey, what's going on? You know, how, do they, how are they so confident to come in my house? Because that's my son. My house is his house. That's my son. You are righteous. You are righteous if you know Christ because you have his righteousness. And that in, this, is, this is what perfection is. It is righteousness. And it's only in Christ. I know you can't understand it anyway, so it don't matter. You are righteous in Christ. You are perfect. And the reason that you'll stay perfect forever is because he stays perfect forever. You see, you get, you literally get, no, he literally became your sin. Grayson, do you understand that that thing you did this morning, I won't tell everybody, Jesus died for that particular sin. Did you understand that? He really did. Whatever it was, he died. That sin right there got him one more lash. <laughs> right? It is forever and permanently. This is that forever and permanently tattooed, scarred on his back. Let me see what I'm saying now. Keith, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> when Jesus Christ arose from the dead, what did he do? He looked at Thomas, who was doubting. And he said, put your hand in, put your Put your, nail, put your finger in the nail hole. Put your, put your hand in the nail-scarred hand. But Jesus got up, was resurrected from the dead, and he had his body, but he still had his scars. Why did Jesus have his scars? And if Jesus has his scars, do we have our scars? I don't think we have our scars. Why does Jesus have his scars? It's because he carries the imprint of your, the consequences of your sin for all of eternity so that you can carry the righteousness of God for all eternity that is Christ isn't that crazy that is crazy that he became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God that sin is tattooed it is it is cut into his skin but brother I know you got saved not too long ago right you've been you've, you've grown in the Lord his righteousness Grayson as that as your sin, and I got sin. He did it for me too. He's got a he's got a big old BP right on his back, right? I'm carved into him. But he's carved into me. I can't get away from him. I can't. Nobody told me that the Holy Ghost will haunt you. He will. As your sin is is cut into his back, so his righteousness has been implanted into you, and it can never come out again. Enduring perfection. And I, got, I know I got to go. This last one. Yeah, this one it says. It really is. And it was not. I know, babe. I'm trying to hurt him. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. You remember what he said in the first part of Hebrews? He said that we draw near through the oath that God swore by himself because there was no one greater. It's the same with Jesus. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They did it according to the system that had been established to govern the world. Jesus Christ comes with one that is established from on high. With an oath from God that by himself. He said, you, sir, you, Christ, are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and you will be that forever and ever and ever, and you will never cease being it. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And so the last one we have, and I'm done, is rest is the result. The old covenant to the new covenant. Death to life. No hope to hope. Having to fulfill to get love from God. To being being fulfilled by God. That's the superiority of Jesus Christ. The Lord God Almighty. Who became a man. Took your sin upon himself. Died the death you should have died. So that we would have the righteousness that he had. That we might live the life he should have lived. Forever. And he lives today. He actually lives today in a physical body with his scars on his hand from mine and your sin as he sits at the right hand of the Father continually interceding on our behalf to maintain, uphold, and sustain our perfection. That's what Christ, that's who Christ is. That's who Christ is. Stand up and let's uh, do business with God.